new thinking when strengthening the U.S. federal government, cyber workforce, and the most cybersecurity-challenged industry. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's security report with new thinking on how to bolster the U.S. federal government's IT and IT security workforce. By one estimate, the federal government has a shortfall of 10,000 cyber practitioners. Steve Cooper is a veteran chief information officer serving in high-profile positions in and out of government. At the beginning of this year, Cooper retired as the CIO of the Commerce Department. He also served as the CIO of the Federal Aviation Administration and was the Department of Homeland Security's first CIO. Earlier this week, in testimony given to the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on Information Technology, Cooper told lawmakers that the way departments and agencies hire cyber practitioners is inefficient. The approach we're taking to hiring cyber talent is well-intended, but it gets in the way of actually filling awful lot of these vacancies across the federal enterprise and retaining that talent. Appropriations bills require CIOs to spend that taxpayer dollars that have been approved within, in my example most recently, the Department of Commerce. What if I could pool some of that money with fellow CIOs most in need to do a couple things? First of all, why not use pooled hiring? Why do I have to end up competing with other CIOs? DHS is more sexy. DOD attracts a heck of a lot more people than the Department of Commerce. It's not a negative. It's just reality. And if we could kind of have a recruiting team, possibly GSA, possibly OPM, possibly DHS, let them do all the hiring for these folks. Go after the skill sets we need and then take those people and deploy them to highest risk. In his remarks, Cooper highlighted what he sees as three persistent cyber employment challenges that often fly under the radar. Position descriptions, career growth, and filling vacant cybersecurity positions. A position description or PD is required before any recruiting action can occur. The current library of IT PDs within an agency or available from OPM do not adequately reflect the skills needed by today's workforce, much less what's coming at us in the next few years. Not having an up-to-date HR-approved PD caused delays of up to six months in the recruiting process. Cooper suggests the problem can be fixed by getting the Office of Personnel Management to create a position descriptions library of pre-approved current and emerging IT roles that would be available for use by any federal agency. As for career growth, Cooper wants the federal government to emulate the private sector by having positions available for individuals to be promoted to. I had some of my most qualified cyber employees leave my offices, either for industry or for another department, because we did not have open positions for which they could compete to be promoted at a time they were ready. My idea to fix this, task OPM as the lead agency to create and standardize career ladders by role to allow inline promotions for qualified employees when they are ready for promotion. With the dearth of available IT security skills, Cooper backs the idea of a Cyber National Guard or Cyber Reserve Force to supplement the understaffed federal government cybersecurity workforce. The Cyber Reserve Corps could drill each month alongside their government counterparts and could be activated for longer periods of time to assist agencies in response to a breach or to assist in deployment of new security patches. That's veteran federal CIO Steve Cooper speaking this past week to Congress. 
Nowhere is cybersecurity challenge more acute today than in the healthcare industry. That bleak assessment comes from Terrence Rice. He's chief information security officer at the pharmaceutical giant Merck, and he testified this past week before a House panel on healthcare cybersecurity. Just the last few years, we've seen more than 100 million health records of American citizens breached in a couple of well-publicized incidents. We have seen how software vulnerabilities in insulin pumps and pacemakers can be exploited to cause potentially lethal attacks. And we have witnessed entire hospitals in the United States and the UK shutting down for multiple days to combat ransomware infections in critical systems. Unfortunately, I believe these incidents underrepresent the risk we are facing in the industry. Marianne Kolbasak-McGee is executive editor of Healthcare Info Security, and she monitored the hearing held by the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation. Welcome, Marianne. Hi, Eric. Is healthcare cybersecurity as dire as, as Rice described, and do the incidents he cited underrepresent the risk healthcare organizations face? I think Rice is correct in his assessment. For instance, we've seen incidents such as disruptive ransomware attacks on some healthcare providers that never get formally reported to regulators. There's no official public record to document or to learn from these incidents. Also, many healthcare businesses, especially the smaller doctor practices and clinics, lack the resources to deal effectively with all but the most basic security initiatives. And many of those efforts are driven by the compliance requirements of HIPAA. Finally, the mobility of patient data, as well as advances in healthcare technology, have opened up a whole new array of risk. Rice and others call for the Department of Health and Human Services to name a senior cybersecurity professional with healthcare inspector experience as the primary liaison to industry. Today, there are multiple offices within the department that have some responsibility for cybersecurity outreach, but none of them have it as their primary task. Few organizations have the detailed cybersecurity knowledge and experience to engage with their private industry peers. This new role would be the focal point for all cybersecurity interactions with the private sector and would serve as the government lead on the rest of the opportunities. Does Rice have a point? Yeah, I do think he has a point. There are various leaders within HHS agencies who have responsibilities for pieces of cybersecurity-related issues in the healthcare sector. For instance, when it comes to the director of the Office for Civil Rights, that authority is focused mainly on enforcing the HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules. However, a new position, let's call it the HHS Cyber Czar, who interfaces between HHS agencies and with the healthcare sector at large could help shed light on healthcare cybersecurity challenges and possible remedies in the bigger picture. Let's see if this happens. Yeah, let's see. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Worried about your privacy? Thinking about using a virtual private network? Before you do, listen to ISMG Security and Technology Editor, Jeremy Kirk. There's always been compelling security arguments to use a VPN when connecting to the internet, but the case is stronger now that U.S. ISPs no longer need their customers' permission to sell their web browsing history. As expected, President Donald Trump approved the repeal of the rules on April 3rd. His signature capped off weeks of bitter campaigning by privacy activists and web luminaries. But the move has arguably elevated awareness around VPNs, which have long been used by the tech savvy. VPN providers such as TunnelBear, iVPN, NordVPN, and others are seeing a surge of interest. 
The broadband privacy rules were adopted last October by the Federal Communications Commission, but had not yet taken effect. They were opposed by the telecommunications industry, which argued that it put them at a big data disadvantage versus other information harvesters, such as Google and Facebook. In the thin-margin ISP business, marketing web browsing activity is a potentially lucrative revenue stream. Under the rules, providers would have had to convince consumers to opt in. Now that barrier is erased. Gaining visibility into browsing traffic offers precise ways to deliver targeted ads based on a person's behavior. A VPN service encrypts data traffic from a person's computer to a data center. Websites see the IP address of the VPN's network rather than a person's real one. ISPs are completely blacked out. Of course, it does mean that the eggs have been transferred to another basket. The VPN provider will know what websites have been visited. But many VPN providers say they have no logging policies where browsing histories are not recorded. Selling that kind of information is also off the cards. But there are some trade-offs with using a VPN. The best and safest providers are usually subscription-based, which usually means a monthly fee. Using a VPN does slow down web browsing, too. For instance, if I connect to a VPN's data center in Norway from Australia, it means that even if I'm going to a website based in Australia, the web browsing traffic is going to take a mighty circuitous route. To reduce that lag, VPN providers try to establish points of presence in many countries so you can connect to one in the same country. Still, stopping web tracking is trying to push the tide with a broom. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but it's important to keep in mind how you're still tracked. Using services such as Facebook are optional, but of course you're logged in. Ad blocking software stops a lot of advertising-based web tracking, but increasingly it's impossible to view content on many websites now with one enabled. Unfortunately, this is the modern privacy landscape. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, it seems as if many Americans are paying attention to the news about hacking, especially last fall's cyber attacks on Democratic Party computers. According to a poll taken last month by Reuters and Ipsos, 40% of Americans say they are more cautious about what they write in emails since last year's cyber attacks against the Democratic Party. And 45% of respondents say they've changed their online passwords since the hacks. Still, Americans appear slow in adopting other security measures. Only 5% of respondents say they've begun using secure messaging services like Signal and WhatsApp. And 16% say they followed the tactic adopted by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and FBI director James Comey by blocking any unwanted spying by taping over the camera on their computers. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.